We are um, continuing in our sermon series on the things that Jesus said, uh, looking at words that bring life. And uh, today, uh, we're going to focus on the sacrifice and work that it takes to realize our favor, our flourishing condition, why we can thrive, how we actually walk into the fullness of everything God made available to us through Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection. And usually when the words sacrifice and work happen, isn't it fun how like words all coordinate? Uh, I don't usually communicate what I'm talking about. Pardon me? Is there what? Uh, I, don't, I don't know, but don't. It's good. Yeah, it's probably yours. Um, <laughs> yeah. So where am I? Yeah. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, we're focusing again on the sacrifice it takes. And so an example of this is kind of camping. And, and so Katie and I moved here, and I don't have a culture of camping. I never really camped. That's not true. I camped as a teenager. And camping as a teenager is different than camping as an adult with kids. So now uh, we started with tenting. And uh, how many of you guys know camping actually takes a lot of work? There's a lot of work before you go camping, and there is a lot of work after you're done camping. And so it's one of those strange vacations that actually requires more work than your actual work to get away from work, right? And so uh, we started with a tent, and we thought, well, hey, let's save some work. And then we bought a tent trailer. And guess what? It's just the same amount of work, but now you have something else to set up and something else to fight about when you are camping, right? And, and, and the reality is camping is work. But if you like camping, you do the work, and you get better at the work because you want to do it. And so we give, sometimes we can give up on things we want, or we decide we're willing to work on it because we like it, right? And that's that word sacrifice. And it's not about work as we're going to look at. It's, just, you know, it's very similar with our faith. It, it takes effort on our part to take hold of everything God made available to us. But again, it's not work. It's actually a result of passion because we want it. And when we want something, we do it. So we're going to start here in Mark 8. And uh, we're going to read all the way through to verse 38, but we're going to start with this first three verses, starting in verse 31. And uh, this morning, I'm reading from the CSB translation, which I actually don't know the acronym. I've just started reading it recently. <laughs> he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. Uh, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So let's pause there for a second. So here Jesus is speaking on the reality of his life. See, contrary to what Peter thought or what his disciples thought uh, um, was going to happen. See, this, the disciples' perspective is here Jesus was coming to overthrow their oppressors, to overthrow Rome, take over, and, and give the disciples, you know, really key positions, and then the nation of Israel would conquer everybody, whatever their perspective was. But what they weren't thinking is that Jesus was actually going to die. And we can actually relate a lot to this, even though we're not looking for, you know, freedom from Rome. Uh, I think we look at our circumstances, we look at our life, and we're looking for Jesus to completely overcome and destroy in a way that, you know, we th deem as good. 
right? Let me give you an example. Like, I have a situation, maybe it's work, and you're like, man, this person I work with, let's just call them uh, a fictitious name, just in case this is your name. Uh, uh, let's just call them, uh, what's a really, uh, James, because James is waving at me. James, like, man, Jesus, you know, I really need you to come through here and actually just uh, get rid of James. Like, make him, make him go away. And we, we had this, you know, the perfect solution here is that James would, you know, leave work, go somewhere else, move from Palmer, whatever it may be. This is our, we had, Jesus, this is what I need you to do. Yet Jesus knows actually what he needs to do, and he doesn't do the very thing that you think he needs, but all of a sudden he changes you, and you're like, oh, I was the problem, right? <laughs> and, and so here, the disciples had this assumption. Yet Jesus knew the reality of the fulfillment of his life was the cross. If he wanted to walk in fulfillment, the reality was the cross, Okay? And the cross is suffering. Now, suffering is a fun word, and we're going to talk about it, because never in the recorded biblical history did the disciples or Jesus lack financially. They didn't struggle financially. I mean, Jesus pulled money out of a fish, so that wasn't an issue. They never really starved. Right? That would be my idea of suffering, yes. going without a meal. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I have to miss lunch. Why, Jesus? <laughs> but suffering, like we're going to see, is rejection. And the suffering that the disciples would endure, while physical, was actually rejection. Later on, Peter would write that Jesus rejected by man, yet the cornerstone, the key. And it's that rejection that Jesus is focusing on here. This is the reality. He understood who he was. So then he turns to Peter. And this is never a good scenario. I don't recommend you doing this in a fight with your wife or your husband or your spouse, right? Get behind me, Satan. Not a great strategy. But understanding, uh, um, again, context, understanding historical context here. Satan, the name, the word Satan is literally yelling deceiver, liar, someone who, you know, tricks me into thinking something else is better, Right? He's saying to Peter, deceiver, someone who is knocking me off my focus, right? Recognizing that no one actually wants to die. It's not like Jesus was really excited about being, you know, crucified and rose again. It's like, yeah, I can't wait for the day. Get behind me. Get away from me, person who is knocking me off my target, my goal. This heavenly-minded, heavenly-focused the statement to Peter is, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, I feel like we can all relate to this. You don't have in mind the things or kingdom perspective. And so many times in church, we hear this statement, and, and, and we, we try to break it here, but it's almost like, you know, Pastors and leaders are proud from this. And we can say things like, you're too heavenly focused for any earthly good. But can we just please understand that if we don't have a heaven focus, then we're actually pretty useless here. Because sometimes our thoughts on what is right and what is good and the way things should go is uh, um, just not right. Can you imagine, like, standing from, like, right in front of the tree? Wasn't there an expression? I'm so bad with expressions, but you can't see the forest from the tree like literally trying to count how many trees are there while standing right. That's just the wrong perspective. Yet the Bible teaches us that we actually sit in or stand or have access to a heavenly perspective. 
that we can see things from a point of view that are greater than our own point of view. And this is what, what Jesus is pointing at. So we're going to continue now in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me in my world, words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory and with holy angels. So let's pause here. So again, before Jesus literally carries his own cross, he talks about carrying a cross. And again, that cross is a symbol of rejection. But a rejection of what? We see here that it is a rejection of ourselves. In the New Living Translation, verse 31 says, you must give up, sorry, verse 34 says, you must give up your own way. And that is the heart of this message. The call of carrying our cross is to give up our own way. Now, how many people know how challenging it is to give up our own way? And if you don't think that it's a challenge, then when is the last time in an argument with someone, even though you knew you were wrong, you would stop immediately and say, oh, my bad, right? We're, we're usually pretty set in our ways. Yeah, here is the call. If you want to follow me, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Now, what I'm going to say now is stolen. Uh, a, a friend of mine texted me this, and it's stolen from someone else, so this is twice stolen. So if it's twice stolen, two bads make a great... No, anyways. Uh, um, carrying our cross has nothing to do with enduring our own aches and pains, but instead it's an invitation to life, having abandoned our own personal and private ambitions, choosing the life He has for us. It's laying down, trusting that God has something good for us. Uh, I remember my church, I grew up in church, and maybe you don't have the same perspective I have, but my church culture is we uh, needed to walk with a sense of uh, um, downtroddenness in order to look holy, right? I, I am carrying my cross, so I gave more money in the tithe this week, brother and sister. I'm carrying my cross and so I gave up my sandwich for someone else and then made my own sandwich later. You know, we, we carry this false sense of humility and we promote our suffering and our lack like that's the cross. Yet really the cross is laying down what I want, trusting that God has something greater. It's laying down our own personal and private ambition and instead choosing life. Now, life is a fun word. Again, we're going to look at it in verse 35. It says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. That word life in the Greek is the word suke. In Latin, they would pronounce it psyche, and that's where we get our English word for psyche. And, and, and really the focus here, that word means soul. It is the seed of our passions, our desires, our dreams. If that sounds familiar, psyche or suke is took, taken from the Hebrew concept of heart, 
And so whenever we see heart in Scripture, I say this, it's kind of this part of the body. It was thought to be like, if you've ever felt like you got gut punched, like, oh, that like <gasps> sucked the wind out of me. Here it's that psyche, that soul, the seat of our passions and our emotions and our desire. And it's the exact same word for soul that we see in verse 36. And so giving up your life, giving up your soul. And so if you read it, it's kind of saying whoever wants to save their passion, their dreams, their desire, their heart will lose it. But whoever loses their passion, whoever lays that down for the sake of him will actually save it. Because what good is it for someone to gain everything? Like, and, and whatever your world is, it's unique to you. Maybe the, your world is enough financial stability that I can retire at 50 and never have to worry and never have to struggle. Maybe your world is, I want to have this massive family and I want to have this, whatever our dreams and our ambitions are that cause us to actually lay down our own calling for. Whatever that word world is for you. And now be honest as you begin to think through this. Who, what, what good is it to gain the whole world? Everything you view as if everything worked this way, it would be perfect. Yet forfeit their soul, their heart, their passion. Or what can you give in exchange for this? How is anything worth more than this? Passion, heart, and desire. In order to truly save it, we have to lay it down. See, the heart, soul, the feelings, passion is known to be absolutely unreliable. When we are driven by passion without knowing and understanding what, where it comes from and what's driving that passion, then we are lost. Because so many things can shape our passion. Our passion can be motivated by our own insecurity, our own brokenness, our family, our friends, our upbringing. Those things can motivate our passion. And if we're not sure and everything we're doing is based in our feelings and then based on our passions, then it's based on something that is broken. There's only one thing that is whole, and that is Jesus Christ. And there's only one person who makes us whole, and that is Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection is in an invitation to walk in wholeness. But it only comes from him. Again, if I'm allowed to get personal for a second, a lot of what motivated me in my teens and in my 20s was to prove everyone who said I wasn't good enough right. And so all of a sudden, achieving and getting recognition from people was what drove me. It what drove me to do what I would do. It drove me to lie about what was going on in my life. And it drove me to be a person that I didn't like or appreciate. Why? Because I, my passion and my desire, the, the roots behind it, were brokenness. What good is it to gain everything I desired, yet truly lose who I really am. And I thought, this is who I am. I got the right job. This is who I am. I got the, you know, a, a trophy wife. That is who I am. I have my family. That is who I am. I have my car. That is who I am. I have the respect of my peers. That is who I am. That is not who we are. I was working on this message several weeks ago, and I feel like uh, Monday night prayer 
uh, the end of Monday Night Prayer, uh, um, it reminded me of a dream that Katie had in, in May, and it brought a lot of clarity to this dream. And I think there's a really powerful message behind this dream. And so I want to share it with you guys and, and tie it all together. So uh, actually, we were coming back home from convention. We had convention this year in Whistler. So we're driving home. And as we're driving, Katie's like, hey, I had this dream. And so we didn't write it down because we were driving. Because, you know, driving and writing probably doesn't go well together. But um, yeah. And so we're reciting this a little bit from memory. But in, in Katie's dream, there was a couple of people who were really, really well-dressed. And they were standing outside of Savon, which is just down the hill by Starbucks there. Probably saw the giant line, anyways. And, and uh, those people were, were wearing uh, just suits. They were well-groomed, well-dressed. They just looked all put together. And they seemed to be recruiting people, uh, teens, kids, for fun things like, like, like hockey camps and stuff. And, and the things on the list weren't important. What was important was they were just really fun things that seemed really, really good. And so, uh, but... As, you're, as Katie was watching, those things actually weren't good. And instead, um, people were actually being kidnapped, thrown into vehicles, and they were driving off with them. And, and Katie recognized someone she cared about in one of the vehicles, and she ran after it, and, and she saved that person from that vehicle. And I think um, there's two parts to this dream that are applicable. And, and, and you know, if you feel like there's more, I'm, please talk to me. But first, uh, personally here, God is moving here. I think um, God moves everywhere, but there's just something, you know, something really cool is happening. We're having a really good time. We're hearing testimonies of lives being changed. We're seeing breakthrough. We're seeing healing. Uh, um, we're seeing God answer prayer. Uh, um, and all of that is really, really good. But the message we heard on Monday night is that we need to stay vigilant. And that's what brought this, this dream to my mind, because our enemy who wants the opposite, that's that word deceiver. Our enemy wants the opposite of the life that God has promised us. And he's using life, he's using things, and he's using passion to distract us. And they're good things. The things that we would look and deem as good. This is what we should be doing. And God is inviting us into a relationship, a relationship that involves talking to him, hearing and obeying, and walking in it, and walking in uh, that kind of obedience, and carrying what he has called us to carry. See, I feel like uh, in culture in general, and in church culture, we celebrate hard work. We celebrate stuff. We value position. We value doing, and we value accomplishments. And even though the cross equals sacrifice and the cross equals uh, um, laying down, the promise that God gives in his word is the cross actually leads to life. And that should be the measuring stick that we carry. Jesus said in his word that I've come to give life and life abundantly. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Uh, uh, Jesus would say, uh, actually, Rachel is going to touch on this when she preaches at the end of the month, that uh, um, come to me, everyone who is tired, who is heavy burdened, and I will give them rest. And his invitation is, I will give you my burden or I will give you my cross because that is light. And so the question is, whose cross are we carrying? You see, I, I, I again, if I, this is a personal word for me. 
right? And I, I've gone through this journey where not even more than four years ago, I would sit on every committee. I was on a housing committee. I was on a food security committee. I was on a homeless committee. I was on all these things, and they're good things. And I was uh, on a committee for our Bible college, and I was uh, doing this and doing that. And I was doing all these things, and all those things are good. But guys, I was carrying the cross of Sam and not the cross of Christ. See, it's not about doing more and doing good things. Because if my doing doesn't lead to rest, and doesn't need to life, then I am doing the wrong things. God has called us to obedience, not sacrifice. The sacrifice that he is inviting us into is obedience, and it gives us life. Do not let our upbringing, what we view as important, our whatever, distract us, knock us off course, and carry a cross that we are not, to call, we're not called to carry. Mm-hmm. Hear me, it's not about doing more. It's about doing the right thing. Second part of that dream is a fighting for those who have been kidnapped. Guys, our kids, our kids are growing up surrounded by and influenced by so many things. We need to lead by example. Adults, not just parents, each and every one of us. We need to lead by example to show what priority is, what love is, what grace and acceptance is, what rest is for our teenagers who grew up in a culture right now, just in general. It's not just right now. The pressure of being a teenager, the pressure to achieve, and then you mix that in with hormones and acceptance and wanting to fit in, and who am I, and who am I not, and boys and girls and relationships. All that stuff is so confusing. And, and, and parents, adults, we have this opportunity to demonstrate that there is a God who holds us in his hands. That when we lay down all the stuff, he gives us life. Guys, we can fight for our marriages, for our spouses, for our neighbor, for our family. It is not too late. And we fight on our knees. We fight in prayer. We fight by demonstrating that our God is a God of rest, a God of life, and a God of love, and a God of grace. And it is never too late to lay it down and pick up our cross. No matter how far that car is driven, the minute that we break free, God is right there. And that is the beauty of the message of the cross. And this is what we're called to do. Lay down our own passions and selfish ambition for his promise of life. 